Hello and welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Our guest today is Shay Serrano, who is a staff writer at The Ringer. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He just put out a book called Movies and Other Things. Shay, how does it feel to be the first Mexican-American to have three books on the bestsellers list? It feels, it's one of those things that's like cool at first and then sucky after that. Cool because awesome it happened and I get to like say that with my name, but also sucky that it took this long. Liz has been around for over 88 years now and it's just nuts that like Sandra Sistenos didn't have three books on there or, or Luis Urea or I mean it just it's one of those things you hear it and you're like that's weird this should have this shouldn't be a thing right now. Yeah, when I heard you say it on a few podcasts, and I was surprised to hear, just thinking about all the folks that have come through, but it's better late than never. Congrats, though. When I uh, initially hit you up, I was asking if you were coming out to San Francisco, and I'm curious because you have this book tour, and there are so many Mexican-Americans in San Francisco. How come you didn't come through? Uh, It's hard to find a direct flight from San Antonio to San Francisco, and uh I'm just not going to plane where I have to get off to get on another plane. So yeah, we ended up having to set it up to where it was like, if I'm going to get to San Francisco, I got to do another city first. And it was just a lot of scheduling. So that plus finding a bookstore to do it in, having an open date, like a lot of little pieces that have to snap together, but I'll get out there eventually. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the content development for this book? Because a lot of people that listen to this podcast are content creators themselves or work in the media and music lanes. And I know that before this book came out, you had a couple podcasts on The Ringer. You had that Villains podcast about some of the most evil people in movies. And you also had the John Wick podcast. Were either of those training grounds or testing grounds for movies and other things? Uh, no, they were uh, it was more um, the opposite. I was working in the book. Uh, by that point, I had done a ton of research already, and I was just, uh, I wanted to do a podcast. I thought it would be fun to do it. And since I was doing so much work in that space already, in like the movie space, it just made sense to do something that would be beneficial to, to both of those things. Like I didn't want to do a basketball podcast at the time because then I would have to, pull myself out of where I was and set up shop in a new area and research a bunch of stuff that I hadn't been, uh, you know, fresh with. So it was like, you know, I was doing the book first and then the, the movie podcast stuff just came out of that. Okay. No, that makes sense. And I'm curious with how you chose the chapters themselves, because I was looking through, read a good amount of it, and you have a mix of popular movies that definitely wide and often discussed in pop culture you have your what i call your a24 art house movies that get some chapters and then you have ones that seem a bit more personal whether those are shea projects or ones that are outside of the mainstream scope but something that spoke to you was that a conscious balance you would say as you were developing the content not necessarily what i what i wanted to do was the same thing i did with the basketball book is prior to deciding what I was going to put inside there, I had to, I came up with like these different categories. 
And what I want is when I'm done with the book, I want it to feel balanced. I want it to feel like we're, we're hitting not only all of the stuff that I want to hit, but we're hitting it in a way that is meaningful. So what I do is I have these different categories where I'm like, okay, I know the book is going to be about 30 chapters. So let's say I want to have six different main categories in here. I want to have six chapters that allow me to just be like, that will allow me to be silly. And that's just like the whole point of them so that I can celebrate these movies in a certain way. And then I want six chapters that are going to allow me to like glance at the history of movies. And then I want six chapters that are going to do X and six chapters that are going to do this, six chapters that are going to do that. And so once I have like those broad categories in place, then I'm just figuring out how can I, now I'm figuring out what can I write about that will allow me to like put a check mark in one of these boxes. So there's a chapter in there about, about the Raptors and Jurassic Park. And that's just like a, that's a silly chapter. Okay, cool. One check for that. And then there's a chapter in there about, uh, specifically about prison, I mean, about heist movies. And I'm like, okay, cool. This is like my genre chapter check. And I'm just going through and then I'm trying to get, make sure that I have like five in each category or whatever. Cause then when I'm done five or six in each category, then I, everything will feel like balanced. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause one of the things that I was thinking as I was going through, I noticed there was the part on Selena, the movie that came out in the mid nineties there, you also had the chapter about Friday. And I was wondering if diversity itself was a focus of talking about movies that focused on non white characters. Was that intentional? Uh, it wasn't intentional, like with the, the degree that I think people assume it was. I think uh, I've had this question asked to me. The first time somebody asked it to me, it was a, and we were talking about the book, and he said he asked like very plainly, "Why did you write about so many movies that weren't centered around like white men?" And I didn't even like I hadn't even thought about it. I hadn't set out to do that. I think it's just a byproduct of me not being a white man. So of course the movies that like meant the most to me are usually going to be the ones that weren't, weren't that on like a personal level, you know, of course you still love whatever the social network, the beautiful movie and it stars mainly white people in it. Um, but a movie like Selena or blood in blood out or Friday, <clears throat> those ones, they just, you know, they, they, they touch you a little bit differently. So, it wasn't something I didn't like with the categories, for example, I didn't have a checklist and be like, okay, I need to make sure that I mention these four movies that have like Mexicans in them. It just happens because those are the ones that I've watched the most, you know? Right. It reminded me of a conversation I've had with a few different friends. Remember, I had a few roommates and the four of us were talking about movies one day and one of our roommates, she said her favorite movie was Coming to America. And then he had this whole conversation afterward about, okay, well, when you're talking to white people, what do you say that your favorite movie is? And then it started through this whole conversation about whether or not we thought that Coming to America is a movie that was widely watched by white people. And then her saying that um, when white people ask her, she will say that The Shawshank Redemption is her favorite movie or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, reading this book like made me think of that and like some of like the conscious things you think about like, okay, is this relatable or is this going to speak to only a certain audience or do I have to include this other reference to 
be more, you know, broadly accepted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I, I had that worry definitely early on in the book. Uh, I was like, man, some of these movies that I'm writing about, like I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you four people who don't live in San Antonio who have seen Blood In, Blood Out, which is my favorite movie of all time. Have you seen Blood In, Blood Out? I haven't yet. No, I, I knew I was going to like spend some time with that movie or I was going to spend some time with Selena or whatever, whatever movies uh, a lot of people haven't seen. And, uh, and I was nervous about that. I thought it was going to like alienate potential buyers from the book. And, uh, uh then I r- realized the more that I thought about it, like the point was not, <clears throat> excuse me, the point was not for me to try to cover like every movie that every person cares about because it, it, that's an impossible task. The point was to try to write about movies in a way where we we're all sort of feeling the like same five or six different feelings whenever we're watching a movie. So the point was to write about the movie in a way that allowed me to talk about those feelings. That way, when you read it, you go like, even if you hadn't seen the movie, it still made sense. Um, the central theme was still the same. You could be like, oh, this is like his version of blank for me. Blood in, blood out is his version of coming to America for me. I had these very same feelings when I saw these like similar scenes or whatever. Like that's that's really what what I was trying to do. And then and then I know if I could do that well enough, then it didn't matter what movies I was talking about. Same as when I write about the Spurs, which are my favorite basketball team. If your favorite basketball team isn't the Spurs, you should still be able to read that thing and be like, oh, oh, I get it. Like, I feel this way about the Bucks or whatever. Right. Interesting. Hearing that, it's definitely a slightly different approach than how I'd say that mainstream media is now covering a lot of this stuff, right? Like, no different. You're watching ESPN spending most of their time talking about um, whatever team LeBron has been on and whatever other team is dominant, right? And I will say, like, similarly, it's something that I've been cognizant about as I write Trapital for my own media company. I think a lot of people would be interested in, you know, a deep dive article on a rapper like No Name or a rapper like YBN Corday, but in the back of your mind, you're always thinking about, okay, I know that if there are deeper dives on your Jay-Z's, your Beyonce's and Rihanna's, it has a little bit more traction. So it's interesting to hear how you think about that from a similar perspective. Yeah, that's all, that's always, that's always there. Um, but usually the stuff that I'm writing, is just like, I don't care too much about anything beyond do I want to spend some time with this? I wrote, I wrote a thing about no name one time. Um, this was back before her, her, not this most recent tape, but the one prior. So it's like two years ago. And, uh, and that was like an article that I got a big, one of the bigger responses on, because I talked about her. I talked about this other kid named this other, uh, like a newer rapper named cousin Stiz out of Boston. There were like th- three or four that were coming up at the time that I thought were doing really interesting, cool stuff. And, but I, I had that same feeling. I was like, man, I, sh- I could probably just write about the new Drake or whatever and get a little more, <clears throat> a little more bang. But it, it, that, that one ended up doing really well. I think people are just interested. Uh, I think they're interested in the stuff that they like. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to like get a ton of people or trying to get everybody to pay attention to a thing, it's usually not going to work out that great. I think the internet has sort of atomized everything. Now, if you just pick the stuff only that you like, then the other people who like that same stuff are going to, are going to find it. That's why I guess a site, like if I'm talking about the Spurs, there's this website called pounding the rock and all they talk about is Spurs stuff. And it's like one of my favorite websites 
on the internet. I can go there and I can read 4,000 words about Bryn Forbes or DeJounte Murray, who nobody else is really talking about, but I go there specifically for that. I think it's the same thing, you know? Yeah, it's it's like the athletics strategy. Let's get very specific on these local markets and knowing that a small audience is going to be interested in it, but there'll be enough people that are passionate to push it forward. When you were first deciding that you wanted to put movies and other things out there, did doing a different type of medium outside of books cross your mind at all, whether it was video or podcasting itself? And what sparked that question for me is I saw that Bill Simmons is doing his book of basketball 2.0 as a podcast this time instead of a book. Uh, did you know that you were going to do a book the whole time or did you consider any other platforms? Uh, I knew I was going to do a book the whole time. The books that I'm doing, I don't know. I, I, I get Bill's book, the book of basketball makes sense as a podcast, the way that it's set up. Number one, because there's, there, there are no illustrations in there. So you don't have to worry about that part of it. Um, number two, because the stuff that he's talking about is stuff that gets talked about on podcasts uh, regularly. You know, it, he, he, he comes up with like, he's really good about coming up with, with these, like, I don't know what you call them, devices to talk about a thing in like a newer, interesting way. And if you do something like that, then of course a podcast makes sense because a podcast makes sense. Um, but when I'm doing these books, I like to, you know, uh, some of the stuff is like kind of weird and it's not going to make sense if it doesn't have some accompanying art with it or like a chart that helps relay some information so no i didn't i didn't uh consider doing any of them as a, a as anything other than a than a book i did think about doing them uh doing it as a book that i didn't use a publisher to go through uh prior to doing the prior to doing the movie book i did a i basically did a smaller book it was 10 10 essays about this tv show the office and uh, but rather than put it out as like a print product, I just made it uh, a PDF that I emailed to people, and uh, we set up like a little website for it. And it was like you come here, you pay twenty bucks, and then you get an email, and it's these ten essays about this TV show. And again, I was just zooming in on the thing that I, that I liked a lot, and I assumed there would be other people out there who also liked it and who would be willing to pay for this. I was I was all automatically deleting everybody who didn't like the office. I was automatically deleting everybody who like wanted me to write about Mad Men or, or parks and recreation or whatever. I said, this is only for people who like the office. And, uh, I put it out that way and that did, that did better than I thought it would. Um, you know, people bought that and then the, the, the like revenue split is, was so much different on there. Um, with a, like a book, the the movie book costs twenty five dollars in stores, and when you buy it, I think I make like somewhere between two and three dollars maybe. Mm. And the PDF was twenty dollars to buy it, and when you buy it, I get nineteen of those twenty dollars. And the website that I use takes one of the dollars, so it was like a you know, and the inverse. So all of a sudden, I didn't have to sell a hundred thousand copies of a book to to make the money I wanted to make. I only had to sell. I don't know, 10,000 or 15,000. You know what I'm saying? Got it. Well, that's interesting. I mean, seeing the success of that book and I mean, your margins are that much higher. Did that make you want to 
push that idea even further because I look at how strong your Twitter strategy is and how much you're telling people to buy, buy, buy. I mean, and the office has a lot of fans out there. It sounds like you may have emailed it out, you know, selectively to groups, but I don't know. What do you think it would have looked like if the office book had gotten the Chase Serrano movies and other things promotional strategy? Uh, we probably would have sold more copies, I imagine. Um, but yeah, the, the, the book stuff is such a grind. It's like, it's legit. I don't know. It's two years of your life to start that you automatically know is committed to things. Um, and, and writing it is hard. Coming up with the stuff is hard. Building it, designing it, making sure all of the pieces like look right and feel right. That's all hard. But, but selling it is like, because it's, it's, it's very, I don't know. It's stressful. Um, it sort of sits in the back of your brain at all times. Um, and the weeks leading up to it, I was like having actual, you start having nightmares of like the, the reoccurring thing in the nightmare was that something was chasing me. Um, I couldn't, I never saw exactly what it was, but I knew it was something that was threatening. And, uh, but this was all because I was like worried every single day. As soon as I would wake up, I was worried about how many copies of the book had sold the day before. I was worried how many copies were going to sell that day. I was worried that it wasn't going to hit like these imaginary goals I had set for myself. And it was like, it's a lot to deal with, um, with the PDF, with the office thing that there wasn't that at all. There was nobody else that I was like beholden to. I was in charge of everything. I made all of the like final decisions. If it sold a bunch of copies, awesome. If it didn't like, who cares? Because I don't know, I, nobody had given me money to do it. I was just doing it myself. Um, so uh, that's sort of why I handled it differently than I would the movie book. It didn't feel like as serious of a thing. Um, if it didn't work out, like nobody was going to say anything to me about it. Uh, it was like all basically all, all upside. Whereas with the book, you're just like constantly, constantly worrying about it or I am anyway. Talk a little bit about that worrying and, and, and that stress were these like self-imposed goals that you had wanted to reach yourself was it goals that the publisher or others had for you uh no, this is all self self-imposed stuff the publishers have never one time been like you're not selling enough copies or whatever uh, i i know that they have their own goals they don't really talk to me too much about those um so this is all just straight up like okay the publisher paid me x amount of money to do this book i i owe them I owe them the like the responsibility of making sure that it sells X amount of copies is what I feel like in my head. And it's very important to me to like be the, the guy who can deliver on these, on these things. Because up until that point, this point in my career, I have been that person. Like the books have done better than the publishers were expecting each time. And uh, so I, I, I feel that internally. Also, this was like the first book through Ringer Books, which is, I work at a website called The Ringer. They established a, a publishing arm. This was like their flagship book for the publishing arm. It was the first one. I didn't want to let down Bill and Sean and all of those guys. I didn't want to let down um, the publisher. I just felt, I didn't want to let down Twitter, which sounds like a weird thing to say, but I didn't want to have to go on there and be like, oh, we didn't make the bestseller list this time, everyone. Like, I'm sorry. And I didn't, I didn't, want, to, I didn't want to have to carry that weight. And, uh, and it's just like, it's always there. It's always leaning on you the whole fucking year and a half before the book comes out or whatever, especially those last few weeks. And you're looking at your pre-order numbers 
and you're looking at how far away they are from like the numbers you're hoping to hit and trying to figure out how you can bridge that gap. And it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot. This, this, this time, especially the other times it was like, I was less worried about it because I didn't know, I didn't understand the stakes. I didn't know, you know, what the point of all of this stuff was. Um, but, but now it's become like clear that this is basically my livelihood. This is how I'm going to make my money. And, uh, then you're just like, well, this is fucking serious. Yeah, I bet. Talk a little bit about what you did from a promotional strategy. Was it primarily pumping it through Twitter and then the publicists reaching out to different folks? Or were there other things that you had done as well? Uh, those were the main things. I figured out pretty early on. I figured out between the, the first project I worked on, which was a coloring book that I illustrated for... Uh, this rapper named Bun B out of Texas is like one of my all time favorite musicians. He reached out, we did this project together. And when I was working on that one, I thought all I've got, all I've got to do is like just get media coverage. If I get enough media coverage, then we'll sell a bunch of copies of the book. And so we were trying to like land in all these different big places and, and we were checking off the boxes. It was happening. And then the book came out. I think the first week we sold like 900 copies, which, which isn't like a, a giant amount um, but it was like, I guess this is just how many copies of a book get sold the first week. And then with, uh, the rap yearbook, which came out a couple of years later, uh, with that one, what ended up happening, this was totally by accident, but I got an alert one day from the publisher and they're like, Hey, the Amazon page is up for the book. There's no cover on there. There's no like meta text. There's no information about the book, but people can, you can see like, it's a real thing. And so I saw the link. I, grabbed the link. I posted it on Twitter. And I'm like, look, this is it. While this is like a real thing that's really happening. They're letting me write a book. And I just posted that link. And then, uh, that was it. Uh, we were like leaving our house to drive from one city to another. We we're going from Houston to Corpus, which is like several hours away. So I had my phone and in my pocket. We drive down the Corpus. By the time we get to Corpus, I like open up the link to show my sister. Cause that's where we we're going to visit. And this was again, a couple hours later, Amazon updates their rankings every hour. And there was like a, a little, they put like a little flag by it, this little yellow flag that says like number one new release or number one bestseller in like a specific category or whatever. And it's not hard to get one of those little things. If you sell 20 copies of a book in an hour, you can usually grab one. Um, but I saw it on there and I, and we had jumped up from like 8 millionth, an 8 millionth ranking to like 30,000 or something. Um, but it was very clear that the reason that we had done that was, was because I posted a link on Twitter. People like responded directly to it. They saw the link, they went to it, they pre-ordered. And then like a couple people actually sent me screenshots of it. And I was like, oh shit. Like they responded directly to this thing. And then I, in my head, I get all of the pieces sort of came together because by this point I had been writing about Houston rappers for a few years for the Houston press. And there were just tons and tons of these stories of these guys who, because they weren't in New York or LA, especially early on in the nineties, the, the early two thousands, uh, they just had built this self-contained ecosystem and they weren't worried about anything except hand selling copies of their albums out of the trunks of their cars at like gas stations and shit. Like DJ screw made millions of dollars, literally selling tapes out of his house. People would just come to his house to get the tapes and he wasn't worried about anything else. He wasn't worried about uh, getting recognized by 
whatever Rolling Stone or XXL or MTV, like because he knew if he he if he could just touch the people around him, there's enough here that he can do what he needs to do. And I was like, oh shit, that's what I should be doing. I should just be going the internet version of out of the trunk of your car, which is on Twitter at the time. And uh, so I just started doing that, and then uh, that book did like 8,500 copies the first week, almost 10x what the rap yearbook, I mean, what the coloring book did all because I was just pushing it, pushing it on, on Twitter, doing like little giveaways and making it like a thing. Um, and then, so I was like, well, I guess this will just be my, my business strategy now. And that's just really all that I, all that I worry about. Seeing the success of it and seeing the impact, it definitely looks like it worked. And it seems like you've been able to level up with both of the books after that, as your Twitter following grows, it then just increases exponentially based on that. Love to hear a little bit more about the development of the fuck out of here army. Was that something that you intentionally conceived yourself? Was it a thought around, okay, how can I brand this? Like, were you looking at how rappers and other artists have their fan bases and you were like, okay, how can I uh, replicate that? Uh, no, that happened all by accident. That happened during the during the rollout of the of the rap yearbook. Um, again, nobody was expecting for the the book to sell as many copies as it did. The publisher publishers do like this projection of how many copies they think a book will sell in two years, and <clears throat> they use that as like a rough guideline of how many copies they're going to print up for the for the first run. And the publisher thought we would sell like 15,000 copies of the rap yearbook in two years. Uh, so we didn't have enough copies printed up for the stores um, to like get them in time when we, when the book started to like pick up momentum. Um, so like we would go to whatever Amazon sold out like the, the first day they were just, it said on there, these are, we're out of copies. We're going to get some soon, whatever. So I posted a thing on Twitter and was like, okay, don't buy it. Don't buy them here anymore. Cause it's not going to count for the first week. We've got to move to the next spot. And then we went to some other like independent book chain called books a million. And they had a couple hundred copies, I think. And then we sold out of that one. And then it was like, all right, we're going to this other one. Here's one in Texas. And then we sold out that we were going like place to place and just sort of buying up all the books. And somebody on Twitter made a joke that this, that it was like a, like a shitty version of an army. And then somebody else came behind them and made a, 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 they called it the fuck out of here army because that was like a thing that we were saying a lot at the time. And that's just sort of how it happened. And then once it had a name, it was like, it became a thing. And it started out as just people sort of buying books. And then it somehow morphed into people donating money to different charities. And then, you know, over these last couple of years, over these last three years or something, it's just gotten bigger and and bigger and you know slightly more intense every day and now we can whenever we can raise twenty thousand dollars in an hour if we need to we did we've i think <clears throat> i have it written down somewhere but we have donated like just in straight cash uh, like over three hundred thousand dollars at this point to different nonprofits or just people on the internet who needed help and and again the, none of this stuff was planned it was just like it just sort of happens by accident. We don't have like an official nonprofit, like 503 tax exemption or whatever. Like it's just some shit we're doing on Twitter when we get bored. That's awesome. You should definitely feel good about that. 
I do have a question on that, though. As you mentioned to yourself, it gets more intense. It gets stronger. Do you think about how best to manage or wielding in any of this? Something I've written about often is stan culture and how the Nicki Minaj fans or how the Beyonce fans can go after X, Y, and Z person if something is said wrong. The fuck out of here army may not be on that level. Is that something that you think about with the intensity as it grows and grows? No, I don't think too much about it because it's not, it's certainly not anywhere near that kind of situation. This is is a very small group of people who are just going to send me like five or 10 bucks whenever we need to raise money for a thing. But it it is like unilaterally just a positive situation that's never like, oh, this person did like the wrong thing. I think the closest we get to that is just telling like, Trump or Trump supporters to fuck off. That's basically, that's like our main common enemy. Everything else is sort of fungible. And we, we're probably just on the internet arguing about movies or music or, or whatever like non-serious thing there is. Uh, we're just, it's, it's, it's jokes. 95% of the time, every once in a while it gets serious. Just this morning I was tweeting about, there is a, uh, there is a, like a child detention center that's trying to like, open up in San Antonio. And when I saw that, I was like, no, fuck this. Like we should say something about this. Uh, it's stuff like that. It's never anything like, Oh, this person said a mean thing about me on the internet. Let's go get them. Right. And I feel like that's the, that's the difference maker there. And oftentimes it's not necessarily even like you, the one that would be pushing that it's someone that hypothetically I haven't seen it, but if someone had written a negative review about movies and other things, it's them assembling the, fuck out of your army to go after that person. But I've yet to see that. I don't know if you've seen that though. Uh, people send negative stuff to me all the time, which is like a very curious practice. Like I do a, I do a very good job of not Googling my name of like not looking for reviews. Um, I just don't want to see any of that stuff. I would prefer to pretend like it doesn't exist. And then every once in a while, somebody will send me a screenshot and be like, look what they were saying about you on reddit or look what they were saying about your book and it's just like fucking this hurts my feelings like don't don't send me this stuff but because i never like retweet those things or like respond to those things i think it just doesn't it just sort of goes away eventually now that the first wave of the book in terms of its initial release is behind you and you're now doing more of the promo stuff how do you feel right now? I know that you had a lot of pressure on yourself to reach those targets, to reach the bestsellers list. You accomplished that. How do you feel? Uh, so do you get basically two waves of relief. The first one is we had a goal of trying to be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that comes out eight days after your book comes out. So the book come out. The book came out on October eighth. It was a Tuesday. Um, eight days later, the, that following Wednesday at five p.m., the list comes out, and they email it to all the publishers, and the publishers email all the authors and tell you if you made it or not. So we were like crazy nervous that day, waiting for the list, waiting for the list. We got the, I got the email. I was actually at Arturo's house. Arturo's the illustrator. We were hanging out, um, me, him, his wife, and his baby. Uh, in Dallas for a book signing and we got the, the alert and we, we, they were like, congratulations, you did it. You're number one. So that, that first, like, okay, good. We're, we're safe there because the basketball book had also been number one on the list. And I was like, 
this one is not number one. That means we're going backwards and that would suck. So you're worried. I was worried about that, but that happens. And like, you feel good and you're like, yes, we did it. Awesome. I feel very great right now. And then the next wave is that third, the following day, the following Thursday, um, there's this thing called book scan, which keeps like an unofficial tally of how many books you've sold. And you can access it. If you're an author, you just sign up on Amazon and you get like, you can only access your book. But um, so what I did is I checked the first week sales of the basketball book, see how many we did. And then I was waiting for the movie book to up, update and then I could compare the two. And <clears throat> I was nervous that we were going to sell less copies than the basketball book. Because again, I think that means you're going backwards. And, uh, and so that one got updated and we, and we beat it by a couple of thousand. And I was like, yes, I, like I felt really good at that point. Everything became much easier to deal with because those are the only two goals I was really like worried about at a time. Um, you, you just develop different goals. Now, like the goal now is, um, the basketball book sold, I don't know, like 150,000 copies in two years. So I would like for the movie book to be there or above it. And that's like the new thing I'm worried about. Um, so that's going to suck for like the next, whatever, 23 months. But, the first, I, I feel good at this moment because we've hit those two things we're trying to hit. I'm sure that those next 23 months will always be in the back of your mind, but switching gears a bit, would love to talk a little bit about your career specifically, because you've clearly done very well for yourself under the Bill Simmons umbrella at both Grantland and The Ringer now. But I wonder if you think that you could have been successful anywhere. Let's say that the folks at Complex, for example, had hit you up the same way that Simmons did. Do you think that Shay could have been the Shay today if he was the Complex guy doing this stuff? Uh, absolutely not. I don't think so. Having having Bill in your corner does a number of things. Um, it, like there are some like spiritual advances that happen because he signs up with you. This is like. This is like big brother on the block. You know what I'm saying? This is the guy that everybody is trying to be like as far as success goes. So when that guy shows up, when LeBron James is like, hey, J.R. Smith, come be on the Cavs with me. We're going to go try and get this championship. Like that feels is a very specific like jolt in your chest that you get when that happens. That's, like, that's what it felt like when Bill said, hey, uh, I think that you might have what it takes to like make this a career. Let me try to help you out where I can. Um, so there's that. Um, but also Bill, Bill offers you, Bill offers you a level of security that a lot of places don't give you. Um, for example, when I went to go work, work for him the first time at Grantland, I signed a part-time contract, but it was like prior to then I was freelancing. So you're pitching places, you're sending out invoices, you're chasing down checks, you're doing like whatever you can to get your little $60 check or your $20 check from these different places. And then Bill shows up and he's like, Hey, if you come work for me, you don't have to worry about any of that. I'm just going to pay you a salary. I'm going to pay you every two weeks. Like if you were a salaried employee and all you have to do is, is write this stuff. So you automatically like get rid of all of the time that you spent chasing your invoices, which when you're freelancing is, is a significant part of the day. Um, so there's that. And then when you go like work full time with them, because if you're freelancing, you likely have a different job that you're doing as well. I was teaching at the time I was teaching, I was coaching. Um, I was like writing a book. I was doing a lot of things. 
And then Bill shows up and he's like, hey, I know you're working part-time, but like come work full-time for me. And I'm going to pay you the money that you need to be paid so that you can still pay all of your bills. But I just want you to write. And I'll give you a, you know, I'll give you a year or I'll give you two years or whatever it is that y'all work out. And so all of a sudden I went from having 20 hours a week to like work on writing stuff to now I have 60 hours a week to work on writing stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't have to do it at night at the expense of like family time or on the weekends. I could do it straight up from 7.30 in the morning until 4.30 in the afternoon when my kids get home from school. And I can just focus all of my energy on that. And, and somebody doing that for you is like, it gives you such an advantage. I think the, you can read through the books and be like, this guy's probably not that great. I could have probably written this exact book. It would have been about different movies, but I could have written movies and other things. I have no question about it. Uh, the only reason that I do it and somebody else didn't was because Bill showed up and was like, hey, let me take everything else off of your plate and you just worry about this stuff. So people ask me all of the time about Bill. I, Bill changed my life. There's no, I don't think there's a, a way that I could have gotten to where uh, I'm hopefully headed um, without Bill standing behind me, sort of lifting me up. Now that's powerful. I will say though, if you're calling Bill O'Brien and you the J.R. Smith, I think you're selling yourself a little short. You could have at least given yourself Kevin Love or something. J.R. Smith is incredible. J.R. Smith is an NBA champion. J.R. Smith can get hot and put up 50 in a game. He won't do it a lot. He'll do it every once in a while. Um, he's like a, been in the league for however many years, 10 years, over 10 years. Like That's all the career I want. I never wanted to be like the leader of the team or like the best player on the team. I just wanted to be on the bus making some jokes with everybody else after the game. You know what I'm saying? I can't see you dribbling, a, dribbling the ball up to midcourt instead of shooting in the basket at the end of that game one, though. I can't see you doing that. I mean, who, who knows? I, I, I would panic. In any high-stakes situation, my immediate response is to just panic. So who knows? More than likely, that's what I would have done to you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I do appreciate with you at The Ringer is that I think you have a, a unique voice there. As I mentioned, my wife and I both listen to the podcast. We're big fans of the rewatchables. And she's one of the ones that often mentions to me, you know, Shay comes in. He obviously is the non-white person. He's not too technical. He doesn't have out of these world references. The way that you talk and contribute on that, it's it feels like it's much more in a relatable way. Is that something that you've ever thought about? Or do you feel conscious like, yes, I'm the person that's bringing a unique perspective in these conversations? Uh, I do think about, I do think about that. Yeah. I think, I think there's a way to, to talk about the stuff you want to talk about. Usually it's silly stuff, but to talk about it in, in like a, a serious way or to treat it, treat those things with care which is like the whole point of the books that I'm doing. Like I'm going to spend 3000 words talking about finding Nemo or, or face off because I care about those movies. And because I think you can like gain valuable insight from those things. Um, it's the same thing here. If I'm going to show up on a podcast and talk about um, a movie, like I want to be, I want to be prepared uh, because I think that's important, but also I want to, I want to be able to explain the feelings that I have in my chest when I watch a thing. Um, seriously and with like respect for that 
particular thing. So I do, I do spend a lot of time thinking about that. Like I think there's always a, there's always a way to talk intelligently about something, regardless of what that thing is. I, I want to try to make sure that I'm doing that, even when it's something as goofy as Den of Thieves. Right, right. That makes sense. All right. So before we let you go, I'd love to hear your top five hip hop artists of all time. Yeah. Are we talking about like my personal favorite or are we talking about who I think are the five greatest? Your personal five. Okay. My personal, my personal five. Give me, I wish I had my computer in front of me. Uh, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get very specific. I'm going to say, I would like, if I'm putting my team together, I would like 1999, Missy Elliott. No, 1997 Missy Elliott. Yeah, give me 1997 Missy Elliott. I need her on the team. Um, give me 1998 DMX. You remember that year that DMX had in 1998? I don't know how old you are. I don't know if you were in high school or a baby at the time. How old are you? I'm 32. 98, you had Dark as Hell is Hot and what do you call it? Flesh of My Flesh. They both came out that same year. Yeah, they both came out that same year. They were both number one like the first time that, that that had ever happened if i'm not mistaken uh, so he was sort of running things at the time also he was just this incredible um this incredible voice that showed up and he came like right after puff daddy had sort of taken off and puff was doing puff daddy was doing like the, the shiny suits and like the aspirational money wraps and then dmx showed up and went the exact opposite direction and it was it was incredible um I thought that was like a, a pivotal moment. Oh, anyway, so we have 1997 Missy Elliott, which is like the super duper fly yeah. um, album. We have 1998 DMX. Um, give me, give me 2015 Kendrick Lamar. Give me to pimp a butterfly Kendrick Lamar. Uh, I think that album is. I don't know. I think that might be the best album of the last ten years. Uh, I think Good Kid, Mad City is like the more popular choice whenever I'm trying to figure out like stuff that I really like. I like the things that become attached to bigger moments or bigger, bigger movements. Um, I think with All Right sort of becoming the, the anthem of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like it was just such a, it was, it's so incredible to watch this happen. And uh, so if I'm picking a version of Kendrick, I, I would like that one. Give me, oof. I feel like I want to say a version of Tupac. Give me 1994 Tupac. Most of these are going to be from the 90s because that's just when I was really like all the way in love with rap music. And it was, I felt like it was changing my life or whatever. Um, so give me, give me 1994 Tupac. <clears throat> and, uh, how many spots do I have left? I have one spot left. Yeah, you got one. All right. But you know who I really, who I really like and who I listen to, I think more than uh, I, I had anticipated that I would grow up and listen to this person. Um, Rakim, give me, I, I'm going to cheat and go two of them. Give me 1987, Eric B. and Rakim. I was the paid in full year. And uh, that, that's probably a little bit before you. Um, and I didn't even, I didn't start listening to him until like, 2011 or some shit like that. Like I just happened across the album. Um, and then it just slowly became like a bigger and bigger, bigger part of me. Uh, but I really liked 
like it seemed like he showed up and was like the first cool like i'm gonna turn rapping into i'm gonna use this as a weapon of sorts it was like him and krs1 but that was like a i don't know he was just always a little bit a little bit cooler to me but i'm leaving off so many here that were like important like you know give me i want to i want to take ugk i want to take outcast uh, if we have, we're picking like newer rappers, we talked about no name earlier. I really like what no name does. I felt bad for leaving off Snoop and like 36 chambers, Wu-Tang, but that, they just, they just missed the cut. I'm glad that you mentioned UGK because you're now, you're the second person from Texas I had on this podcast. Uh, the first was, uh, Matthew Knowles, Beyonce's dad. And I asked him his top five and he didn't name anyone from Houston or anyone from Texas. And I asked him, I was like, no Houston rappers in your top five. And he was like, oh no, well, that's a new hip hop thing. That's a new hip hop. One of the running jokes I always get a kick off is when people say that, uh, Houston bodied New York on big pimping because, um, UGK came through on that. Yeah, they're 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 great. Uh, right and strong. I think 1996. I think that that is the best Southern rap album of all time. I think Bun B has a verse on there on a song called Murder. I think that's the best Southern rap verse of all time. It's unbelievable. Just go back and listen to just just that. Pimp C comes in to start, and he's like just sets everything on fire, and you think, oh well, he ran this, and then Bun shows up, and it's unbelievable. He's like a superhero for two minutes and i just love it i'll definitely check that out next question so i'm sure you saw that both ozuna and cardi b will be in the next fast and furious as one of the enthusiasts of the fast and furious franchise how do you feel about that oh i love it i think you should put in everybody that you want to put in there um they, i imagine they'll have smaller parts but it's fine we had i saw people like getting mad about this or being like precious with the franchise but we like like ludicrous showed up in a bit part and then became like a big uh like a big part of it we had jen remember the remember the rapper jen oh of course i don't know he's off friday yeah yeah jen had like a part in there like it's fine put him in there um you start him out small and if they are are good then they can become like a ludicrous who has become a vital part of the franchise and if they're not then you just sort of fade them off into the into the background Right, like um, like Ja Rule and Bow Wow, who had their moments and left. Yeah, and and what's crazy with the Ja Rule one is, like he sat out. He he was like, I need more money at the time when they were making when they replaced him um, with Luda. They like they just weren't able to pay him enough. He was like still a big star, and he's probably really every day. He's got to be mad about that. The move that franchise has made over five billion dollars at this point. He's just got to. I think if he would have stayed in there, we never have fire fest. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's funny. I compare Ja Rule turning down the Fast and Furious franchise to Terrence Howard turning down the Iron Man franchise. I was like, that could have been y'all, and now you've seen what your replacements have since done. Mm -hmm. It's it sucks. I uh, yeah, I'm waiting for that to. I hope that that happens to me one day. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> All right, so last question for you. At this point, you've gotten shout-outs from a ton of people for your work. Obama had you on the bestseller list. I think I saw The Rock shouted out the, one of the segments you had written about him on the book. What's one shout-out that you haven't gotten yet but would love to? Uh, Michelle Rodriguez. Nice. She's a lady, lady in the Fast and Furious franchise. She's also like the Texas icon. 
Um, so if I, if I was picking one, it would be that one. Nice. No, that would be dope, especially considering Fast and Furious and everything there. Yeah, 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 um, for sure. Well, Shay, it's been a pleasure. And as a personal thank you, I know, you know I've said this over email before, but definitely owe you a lot of thanks. I remember years ago um, when I first hit you up, I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing this freelance thing. I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z. And you're the first person that was like, define your scope, find out what you're doing there. I started out with Houston Rap and got known for Houston rap. And then slowly things started to grow and grow from there and getting known for one thing before you expand elsewhere. And I think I'd sent you a note when I had started a uh, travel to like, Hey, like this definitely stemmed from that initial thought, finding the niche and getting known for that and then seeing where that goes. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. No sweat. I'm proud of, proud of you, man. Keep going. We'll do. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. If you use Apple Podcasts, please go rate and review. That helps continues to boost Trapital Podcast in the rankings. And also, please go to the Trapital.co website. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. There is a ton of great content there. So please check out the articles, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll see you all next time.